The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Tom Philpot. He has been the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones since 2011. Previously, he covered food as a writer and editor for the environmental news website Grist. His work on food politics has appeared in the New York Times, Newsweek, and The Guardian, among others. From 2004 to 2012, he farmed at Maverick Farms in Valais Cruces, North Carolina, and he lives in both North Carolina and Austin, Texas. He has a degree in English as well as engineering, and he is the author of the book we are going to be focusing on today titled Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me, Melinda. So I think your book should be mandatory, required reading for anyone who eats, just to understand how everything is truly connected and how our political and economic systems drive the food on our plates. But in typical form, when I review books, I like to jump to the back and read acknowledgments, and I look at the dedication page. So I was curious, because in your acknowledgments, you recognize both your mother who taught you everything about perseverance and commitment, and your father, who taught you to take the past seriously, question arbitrary authority, and stick up for the underdog. Tell me a little bit about your dad. Oh, he was a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. He taught history, and he wrote an incredible book that was his PhD thesis. So he was writing it when I was a very, very little kid called The Slum in the Ghetto, and it was a look at race in Chicago from 1880 to 1930s. So this is the period that took up immigration from Eastern Europe and Italy into the Great Migration of African Americans moving into, into Chicago from the South, and just discussed the way that race completely controlled who, quote-unquote, made it and who didn't. It really is a fantastic book. came out in the 70s. Yeah. Well, I ask about your dad because I really appreciate the focus on history. And you do that in your book, and you look at what has happened historically to the land and the people in our country and beyond, globally. And you also dedicate this book beautifully to not only your family, but to the farm workers who feed us. Also, um, a very much under-recognized and under-mentioned part of the puzzle. I think we've seen more attention now because of the COVID pandemic, but I appreciate that part of your dedication. We are going to jump into this book and realize that it's not a huge book, but it's jam-packed with information, and we only have 30 minutes. So I want us to start with the first part of your book, and you talk about what it is and what it isn't. And you have focused on two regions of the country specifically, California and the Midwest. Why did you do it this way? Well, I did it 
that way because as I got into this beat, as I started writing about this stuff, the middle part of 2004, 2005, from that point on, as someone covering food and ag for national publications, from a national perspective, those are the two regions that you end up covering a lot because they are the dominant producers of food in the country. So by the time I started writing that thing in 2017, I had been immersed in both of those places, had been, been to them on numerous reporting trips, so I knew them pretty well. And I just had this realization around 2015 during the really bad last California drought. I had this realization that, wow, so we get most of our fruits and vegetables in California. And as I dig into this story, I'm seeing that we're way overusing and drawing down the water resources of that state to produce this bounty of fruits and vegetables that we all have access to. As you know, especially if you have money, go to any grocery store and there's a pretty good bounty of fruits and vegetables. That comes from California. And one of those years, I think it might have been 2013, around the same time of the drought, I realized that in the Midwest, the story of topsoil erosion had really been undercovered. And there was this idea that things were going okay on that front. We had some problems with corn belt agriculture, but erosion wasn't really one of them, was the idea. And I realized that we were losing topsoil at an alarming rate. And so I was like, wait a minute. So we get our fruits and vegetables from California, and we're essentially unwinding that ecosystem that delivers them by sucking out all the water. And we get our, yeah, our meat ends up coming from the Corn Belt, and we're destroying the soil to produce our meat, and we can only do that for so long. And I was like, well, if you look at an American dinner plate, there's a piece of meat in the center and fruits and vegetables off to the side, and... Both of these regions, the dominant places that produce these things, are in a state of ecological unraveling. And I thought, this is something that people need to think about, and policymakers need to think about, and I can write a book about it. So that's kind of how the idea came up. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you also mentioned that as of 2017, more than half of the U.S. consumed fruit and one-third of the fresh vegetables that we consume are actually grown in other countries. Right. So historically thinking, that's not a good idea to be dependent on other countries for our food supply. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And I think one thing that is also really crucial to understand, because, you know, I kind of anticipated when I was writing about, thinking about California water problems, that a lot of people, including policymakers, will be like, well, is this really that big of a problem because we're already increasing imports and if California, if it has water issues to make us produce less there, that's a shame, but we'll just get more from Mexico and Chile and places like that. And I think the main reason why that's a problem, I mean, it's a problem for many reasons. I mean, I think it's, it is an important thing for societies to, I think food should not be given over to trade. I don't think it's a, global trade system and comparative advantage works well with food. So let me just get that say it out right. Right. But there's an even bigger problem, and that is that the places that produce those fruits and vegetables on an industrial scale that make them available to us for a cheap price, 
they too are having very similar, in the case of Mexico, really the exact same problems with water that California is. So there's no importing our way out of this, even if it were a good idea, because climate change and water scarcity and water overuse are not a problem just for California, but they're a problem for Chile, they're a problem for Mexico, they're obviously a problem for Africa, which is sort of a big fruit and vegetable supplier to Europe. So this is not something we can import our way out of. Exactly. And I think that the pandemic, which I think occurred probably after your book had gone to press, but when COVID hit, the lessons and the faults that the pandemic continues to reveal to us regarding where we get our food has been very interesting. And so when our transportation gets disrupted or imports become, you know, we have to stop them for whatever reason, then we realize, oh my gosh, we need food to eat like right here where we are. That's exactly right. When something like that, and you know, we can think of all kinds of possible situations that could arise in the next couple of decades. The, the imagination of disaster that we have has been greatly added to by our experience in the last decade or so uh, with climate disasters and COVID, et cetera. Like, it's not hard to imagine more things that could disrupt global supply chains. And when global supply chains get disrupted, it's a shocking thing because these are invisible. Like, we don't know what it takes or what various machinations are at play to fill up a Walmart or to fill up a produce section of a grocery store. But when those things are disrupted, we know it immediately. And so I think we saw a bit of that with COVID. And I think a lot of it ended up being strange inconveniences, like this or that shape of pasta is no longer available. Or well, I remember, you know, early in COVID, there was like you go to the grocery store and the whole pasta shelf would just be empty. And there was something with the global supply chain that was bringing us pasta that got messed up. But we can imagine a lot more staple things getting messed up. And, you know, here in the United States, the most famous and awful example was the meatpacking plants that mm -hmm. got became these vectors of outbreak in communities and entire plants had to be shut down because of outbreaks. And that did disrupt our meat system for a while. Mostly, I think what it did was ruin the lives of thousands of workers and their families. And I think that kind of exposed something that I've been writing about for years, and that is the really lax regulation that these giant meatpacking companies have when it comes to their workforce. Oh, absolutely. Such inhumane situations. And maybe we'll dive into that a bit more when we get to the Midwestern pages. But I want to just stop in California one more time because, well, on a couple of issues, actually. But first, I do want to recognize Joe Del Bosque yes. because of his melons. So he's got melons on one side of the road. He's got almonds on another. I had no idea that a single almond required a gallon of water to produce. That is a whole other issue about how almonds, it's fascinating the way you describe how almonds have been marketed to places like France and China and just that whole advertising scheme and how to yeah. drive demand, right, for something that's not probably well-suited to be grown in an area that doesn't have a lot of water. But something that Joe said really struck me, and you were looking at his melons, and 
you're in his field and he stops and he slices one open and you describe the flavor of the melon. And it's remarkable, of course. It's an organic farm and it's warmed in the sun. And we all hopefully know what that tastes like. But that's what we risk losing because he says efficiency sacrifices flavor. So his melons are hand harvested by workers and the melons that you get like at the the hotel breakfast bar, as you so perfectly described, taste like nothing. And that's what we give up is that flavor. And maybe in 10 years, we won't know what we're missing anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that section of the book, I wanted to drive home the forces that are pushing California into more and more almonds. And basically, I think this is one of the paradoxes of the food system that I think you and I have discussed before. We've known each other for quite a long time now, and that is that a lot of the things that we take for granted that could be moving away from us, like these really delicious melons, require all of this labor, and to pay that labor, to pay those workers what they deserve would make the food, basically in our system, make a farmer like Joel Del Bosque go out of business. And so California basically, because of social movements from groups like the United Farm Workers and other groups in California, are demanding that farm workers get labor protections on par with the rest of American workers. And it is just like, I still can't believe that this is the case, but it is, that when the Great Depression hit, the New Deal came in to respond to the, to the Great Depression by increasing the power of workers with various things like the eight-hour workday, the time-and-a-half overtime, the 40-hour work week, farm workers and domestic workers were explicitly left out. And so what the message that we're getting from a farmer like Joe Del Bosque is, as California legislation moves farm workers into the New Deal era, which is nearly, it's like 80 years ago now, but as we move them into the New Deal era, what he's saying is, we basically can't have labor-intensive vegetables in California because costs are going to be too much. California is instituting time and half overtime, 40-hour work week, minimum wage for farm... Yeah, minimum wage laws didn't take in farm workers for a good long time. And so I think that's one of the paradoxes is we got to figure out a food system that pays workers what they're worth while also making the kind of food that they're producing, like Joe Bosque's melon, available to everyone. And I think that is, you know, remains a major challenge for the food system. Yes, it does. Let me take one break, Tom, because we're halfway through. And I just need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Tom Philpot. He has been the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones since 2011. We are diving into his truly important book, titled Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. Yeah, I was also struck by the new California labor laws and how important it is to provide people with a living wage. It does create some shifts with regard to whether or not farmers can still afford to produce food and consumers can still afford to buy it at the prices that we have become accustomed to. But cheap food really comes on the back of not only environmental destruction, 
but also the exploitation of labor. And I think that you bring both of those points home beautifully in this book. The other thing I wanted to bring forth, I want to talk about arsenic, because when we have to drill deeper and deeper for water, I didn't realize this, but you get closer to the Earth's core, you've got more chemical contamination with arsenic, which occurs naturally. But you've got farming communities where poor farm workers have to purchase water. Children can't drink out of water fountains in the schools. So this is an environmental catastrophe as well as one that affects human health. So we know arsenic, for example, is associated with increased risk of heart disease, which you describe, as well as cancer, and children are the most vulnerable. Can we talk about that element of water scarcity? Oh, man, that question is rife both in Iowa, in the Corn Belt, and also in California. And it's essentially that these these areas that get taken over by industrial agriculture become unlivable, and water is one of the main signals for that. And I'm actually doing a piece for Mother Jones about how as the California as California moves forward in its drought, you know, makes policy to to respond to this water scarcity, there are thousands of people, tens of thousands of people who live in the Central Valley, which is the big industrial ag region of California that I focus on, who rely on shallow wells for their drinking water. And they are faced with already rotten quality, like you're talking about. There's arsenic when you get too low down into the aquifer and those chemicals concentrate. There's nitrates that come to seep down from fertilization that get into the groundwater. And nitrates, you guys know in the Midwest, are also a really bad thing to have in your water. There are pesticides, unpronounceable pesticides, and I'm forgetting that they stopped using something like 20 years ago that is in many, many water tables throughout the Central Valley. So you're looking at terrible water quality. And like you said, people making $15,000, dollars $25,000 a year under the poverty line having to spend 100 bucks a month on bottled water while paying a water bill that is high because of these badly developed community water systems. On top of that, we're looking at a situation where a lot of these wells could literally go dry in the next 20 years under California's current Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which is the thing they put into place in 2014. That act is the way that these water systems in the area are responding to it, they're doing it in a way that will maximize the access for agriculture and is essentially condemning, according to one study, something like 40% of these wells to go dry, which is just this incredible injustice. And, you know, what it will take, the state will come up with money to fix some of these wells, but it is another cost imposed on the broader society by industrial agriculture and the water quality. So that's like literally availability of water. The water quality issue is basically unsolvable as we keep getting lower and lower in the water table there and those chemicals concentrate more and more. It is truly an incredible injustice. Absolutely. I want to jump to the Midwest now just because we're already halfway through. But I want to talk about your meeting with Tom Franson, who's an organic farmer in Iowa. And I happen to know Tom as well. You arrived there exhausted, and he asked you to jump on his three-wheeler, and you're driving through his property. And 
you become aware of so much, right? You talk about previously having an untrained eye. I was certainly the same way driving through Iowa, seeing all of this green soy and corn. And you think, gosh, look at this lushness. But as you say, with the trained eye, you really get to see what you call this environmental wreckage that we accept because we think we're feeding the world. Right. Yeah. Tom Francis is an incredible character. He's an organic, diversified farmer in the middle of Iowa. And I visited him in summer of 2019. And you, being in Missouri, remember probably just the constant rain started in the middle of winter and went on through June. It just basically rained and rained and rained. And some of the storms were quite big and intense. And it set incredible amount of soil on the move. It basically like pounds the ground and just literally moves tons and tons of prime topsoil off of farms, puts it in ditches and streams, and all the chemicals that are in it go into those ditches and streams. And it is just a catastrophe. And I had been going around with this great Iowa State University scientist named Richard Cruz, and he was just showing me and teaching me how to read these landscapes and just looking at these gashes in the land and these spots in the land where the instead of good prairie black soil, you see this brown or gray soil that he says is a sign of subsoil. The topsoil has literally been scraped off. And seeing all this, and it's like an environmental disaster movie. And then I go to see Tom Franson, and I'm totally exhausted from this day, and he's like, Get on, he get on his little three wheeler and we go roaring through his around his barns where he has his cows and we go into this field and it's just this lush green rye. He's really excited about hybrid rye that overwinters. And where there's all this bare gross soil throughout Iowa, he's not gonna harvest his rye until July. And so it's like this beautiful carpet and there's birds flying in it and nesting in it. And he just put forth this other vision where you farm in a way that keeps most of your ground covered all year with living roots in it, which holds the soil in place. And that sounds so simple, but basically the corn and soybean dominance of the Midwest makes it virtually impossible. So he's this complete outlier. And he was seeing the same, you know, driving around himself in his community, seeing the same thing. It's really bad where he is. And he was basically screaming about it. He's like, I have seen things that no one should see. You need to go. And, you know, just telling me where I had to go to see just catastrophic, visible soil erosion. And so, yeah, it was a very stark evening for me. Yeah, I think that that is the value of your book is that you help us see, you take us with you on your tour of farm country. And it's critical that we all see it so that we can understand how to change it so that we can survive. I thought it was interesting, too, that you described the Midwest as emerging as the industrial scale farm for China and other countries, thanks to cheap soy and corn. And you've got a big section on that. Our time is running too close for comfort for me. So I want to make sure that I ask you one critical question. And that is, what do you hope this book will help accomplish? Uh, Great question. I really hope that as we are in this era when 
climate change is impossible to ignore. Like, you know, the West, as we talk here, is on fire. I'm on the East Coast right now in North Carolina, and we are bracing for hurricane season. You've had derechos in the Midwest in recent years, horrible hurricanes, the Gulf Coast and the East Coast that are just increasing in intensity. And I want us to make sure that as we come to terms, and I hope we come to terms with this issue, I, I don't think we can avoid it. We have to do something because it's becoming so obvious that we don't forget how important food is. And I think that most of the attention that the food system receives, when it does get attention in climate change, is how it's driving climate change. And it is, and we need to stop that. But I think there's an, another question that I think gets taken for granted, and that is, what about the insults that climate change put onto food production? And how is climate change making the problems that I discussed in the book more intense, both in California and in the Corn Belt? And I think that I want people to understand that as climate change proceeds, and as we don't deal with it, these things get more and more intense, the things that we take for granted in the grocery store start slipping out of our reach. We can't keep leaving Iowa and the Corn Belt soil bare all winter and spring and have it soil wash away in these increasingly fierce storms that happen and continue to have access to all of this cheap meat. Nor can we, as drought becomes the norm in California, which is what we're seeing. California has really been in drought since 2007 in an important sense. And so as drought becomes the norm, this bounty of fruits and vegetables from California and nuts are going to be more and more difficult. And as I said before, there's no importing our way out of it. And food and food production have to become central to our discussions of climate change and how we respond to it. And I think that is the key takeaway. But also, I think that the point that I try to drive home in the book also is that when you do industrial agriculture, you create sacrifice zones in the places where you're doing it, and you make life miserable for the people who live there. And they're organizing to literally demand access to water at all, like in the Central Valley, and demand access to clean water, and demand labor rights, decent pay for things like meatpacking plants. All of those struggles are struggles for the greater good, because if they reform industrial agriculture, we all benefit we'll get a more stable food supply. And so one takeaway is that I want that fight for social justice in those areas. I wanted to bolster those fights. Like when you screw farm workers in California and impose on them dirty water, you're also making the food system less resilient for everyone. So I wanted to bring together those two things, society-wide resilience of food and social justice in farm country. And you do so brilliantly. I also appreciate the fact that you talk about what's holding us back from a more regionalized and regenerative farm system. And you talk about the politics involved, the deals that take place with multinational corporations that are all hidden that we need to see. So, Tom, unfortunately, we've got to close. We're out of time. I knew our time would fly. But I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Tom Philpott. He is the author of the book we've been discussing titled Perilous Bounty, 
the looming collapse of American farming and how we can prevent it. He, of course, has been the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones for going on more than a decade now. And fabulous writing, Tom. Thank you so much. We will provide a link to motherjones.com as well as Bloomsbury Press so that folks can easily access your book. I think it's a must read as we enter these tumultuous times. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Melinda. 